0: Welcome to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Bachelor with you again. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Randy Janda. We call Canucks games for you right here on the official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. If you haven't tuned into the show, this is our weekly podcast slash show where we talk about everything going on with the Vancouver Canucks. You can subscribe to the Canucks Central podcast feed to make sure you get the show every week and Randy we're talking on Friday this week after a special night Thursday night at Rogers Arena when Roberto Luongo was inducted into the club's ring of honor.
1: Yeah it was a special night in Vancouver and I think it was a full circle journey for Roberto for the fan base for the organization where they were in you know a position to finally celebrate a player that was Going back to 2006 and seven, such a dominant player for this team. He was like an ace pitcher, like a Roy Halliday or you know Jacob Degrom uh, in his prime, where you could on any given night, whether your forwards or your defense was maybe lacking, maybe there were injuries, you always had a chance to win when this guy was in the crease, and it felt like that. It was kind of the ace pitcher equivalent of of uh, you know a goaltender, and just a great moment to be able to hear from him, hear from his family a little bit as well. And let him enjoy Vancouver, a city that I know, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs in terms of the relationship and, and the contract and all of that. But on a night, you could simply just celebrate a player and in a very unique and one of the most loved individuals in hockey.
0: Yeah, and you know, from our perspective, being in the building... It was so great to hear the emotion from Luonga. You could tell how much it meant to him and just the emotion in the building too from the fan base. Uh, It was a a special night, a special ceremony and you could tell it meant a lot to him and it meant a lot to the fans as well, Randy.
1: Oh, no doubt. And you know what? I I found the generational kind of impact of the player really interesting because earlier on in the day, uh, we go to game day skates and just entering the parkade at Rogers Arena, exiting on a normal game day, Nobody's really standing there. Maybe there's a couple people that are trying to get autographs. Yesterday, Batch, I know you were driving to the rink as well. A lot more people. Um, and some of these people were a little bit older, maybe like myself and you who are in our mid thirties now, uh, would have been high school and maybe university students at the point that Roberto started playing his hockey in Vancouver. But one of the things I also noticed was, you know, a younger demo, like late twenties, people that were kids when they watched, uh, and you can really, you know, going back to to uh, maybe my childhood, like the player for me that really got me into Canucks hockey was Pavel Bure. And it felt like there was a you know, 25, 26 year old uh, guys and girls essentially uh, just seeing a younger demo. It was nice to see where, hey, these guys might have fallen in love with hockey because of a player like Roberto Luongo or that 2011 era of team. So just a cool generational moment as well.
0: You know, the the Reddit thread this week got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention, which was a, a young fan, I'm assuming, asking, you know, basically for those who remember seeing Luongo play, was he as good as Demko? And that got a lot of run uh, because, of course, you know, Luongo's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He's one of the best goaltenders that we've ever seen play the game. And I was thinking about that earlier today and trying to come up with something that could maybe give an idea for younger fans as to Luongo's impact. And the, the stat that I always come back to with Luongo that I'm blown away by was the 76 games that he played in 06, 07. And this is what should put this in perspective for you. Roberto Luongo played so many games in that season that if Thatcher Demko played every single game the rest of this season from mid-December till the end of the year, he would still not hit 76 games because Casey DeSmith has already started eight games and played in nine. That's how much he played. That's how important he was to this franchise, and that's why he was deservedly honored at Rogers Arena.
1: Yeah, that's a wild stat. And it's funny because this uh, last week, I actually ended up talking to Danny Sabaran, who was the uh, backup goaltender on the Canucks team that Roberto Luongo did end up playing, you know, 76 games. And the one of the questions I asked him was, hey, you know, what did you end up, you know, what was it like sharing the crease with Roberto? And he's like, first of all, I didn't play very much. And it's true. When you mentioned off stats like that, where Roberto was just bossing the crease, and it was not like, you know, A, the competitive streak that he had that tells you like this guy wanted to be in the crease every single night i think there was um you know a story that kevin Bieksa told in the video presentation about taking a puck in the throat um in montreal and lou goes back in the crease basically the next game in montreal and has a shutout this guy wanted to play every single game the other element is you know the t- toll it takes on your body batch right you know we've got friends that are goaltenders even if they're beer league or if they've played nhl that's not easy on the hips. That's not easy on the uh, the body. So, you know, just talking to a few guys over the last week or so, Ray Croft, Eddie Lack, and Danny Sabaran, as I mentioned, just got you kind of into the mindset of how much he played, how much he loved playing, and how he wanted to win every single game. Not only hockey, like card games, you name it, competitive in every which way. Uh, unique individual in the sport of hockey, for sure.
0: Yeah, and uh, before we move on to talking about the current team, I thought... Kevin Woodley asked this question of of Rick Tocchet earlier this week, and it's an interesting one because of the way that goaltenders are managed in the modern game. Uh, you know, Luongo's played 1,000 games. Brodeers played 1,000 games. Patrick Waugh played 1,000 games. And Marc-Andre Fleury is about to hit 1,000 games. I think he's three or four shy of that 1,000-game mark. But these are all throwback guys who had those seasons where they played 70-plus games, which we do not see – in the modern NHL. And it does make you wonder, is that a number that goaltenders are going to get to going forward? Or are we really talking about four guys and, you know, maybe one or two more going forward who have that level of impact on the teams that they play for? I don't know if we're ever going to see that again with the way that the game has evolved and managing goaltenders has become such a big part of things.
1: Yeah. I think you're really uh, on to something there, that thousand game mark. I don't see it happening because, you know, if you start looking at the way we looked at goalies before they started wearing masks, right? Like it was, it. it I, you look at that and say, how did that happen? Then you start going to the word stand-up goalies and saying, you know, that was a, an era that they played that style, but the butterfly just changed the game. Um, we don't see stand-up goalies anymore unless you're playing road hockey, and even that is debatable. Uh, overall, though, yeah, I think the way that you're trying to preserve goalies, you're trying to get a tandem um, the option a goaltender is out there, but what does that number look like? 60, 65 games max. And we're even pushing it there. Um, I think it is a throwback. I think it's going to be something we look back at, you know, having, like well, I mentioned the reference earlier, like ace pitchers, guys going nine innings and getting shutouts and playing, you know hundreds and hundreds of innings and they're going to the 115 pitch count. Uh, we don't see that in modern day baseball. I think hockey might be going the same way with the uh, goaltending and, and getting those career games up there. Just doesn't seem really viable with the platoon effect that we're seeing in the NHL these days.
0: Yeah, and to put these gameplay numbers in perspective, as I said, Marc-Andre Fleury, just a few shy of hitting a thousand games. The next active goaltender in terms of games played in the NHL, is Jonathan Quick, who's played 763 career games. So he's still more than 200 games away from getting to 1,000. And he's a veteran goaltender. He's essentially a backup at this point in his career. He's not going to get there. Then you got Sergei Bobrovsky, who, of course, was in the crease uh, for the first two periods anyway in the game against Vancouver, took part in that ceremonial face-off. He's not a young goaltender by any means. He's played 664. Like, this is not a number that is going to be something that goaltenders accomplish unless they come into the league very young and have a 20-year career. Uh, I don't really see it happening. And so that's another thing that makes Luongo's legacy that much more impressive. Well, one thing to add on
1: that impact as well is the cap, right? The cap changes things once, uh, you know, the goaltenders in the league. Now teams want to try to get cheaper on that front. We've seen the Bobrovsky contract. We've seen Carey Price. We've seen a little Longo contract to a certain degree as well, where you're A, even though you might be a really good goaltender like Marc-Andre Fleury, What's your dollar point? And teams are trying to get cheaper. So you might, even though you might be able to, you know, back in the day, you could play into your 40s. We saw guys like Marty Brodeur, Patrick Waugh. We saw, you know, Ed Balfour go quite long into their careers. In a cap world, the dynamic has shifted a little bit where you're trying to get younger. So that's a key element as well.
0: So now let's turn our attention to the team On the ice, and as we speak right now, the Vancouver Canucks have won four games in a row. They concluded the five game homestand with a four and one record. And if you remember, they were within a minute of getting a point against the New Jersey Devils, too, in that comeback that fell short ultimately because the Devils won that game at Rogers Arena. This to me, and this is saying a lot because this Canucks team has been very good to start this season, Randeep. It's the best stretch of hockey they've played in the last three games, I would say in particular. And then you can tack that fourth win on there as well.
1: Yeah. And part of that is the way that they're playing. I think that game against Tampa Bay was, you know, a really strong game. When you start looking at the opposition, that's Tampa Bay team even earlier this year post problems even if it was a a 10-15 minute stretch in the first game that they played this year uh, it looked like the Canucks were just you know overloaded with pressure and they couldn't handle it there was a, a bend and break element to their game early on in the year fast forward to that game in Vancouver it wasn't comfortable but it was a team that handled the opposition and was you know played to their identity and against Florida Uh, You start right at the beginning of the game and 20 times this year the Vancouver Canucks have scored that first goal playing with confidence and what makes this three game stretch really important batch is they played against some of the NHL's heavyweights. We're talking about Carolina that a lot of people predicted would be a president's trophy candidate. They haven't hit that level yet but we know the style that they play. Tampa Bay, nothing needs to be said there. They got superstars. Uh, Steven Stamkos just put up a four spot by himself against the Edmonton Oilers uh, in the last game that they played. They've got star talent. The Canucks take them out. And then the Panthers, last year's cup finalists, played a really greasy game. And the Canucks played a tough-to-play-against style against a team like Florida that thrives in the alley. They want to take it to the gutter. So this three-game stretch, I would agree with you. Early on this year, we were talking about, wow, look at this high-flying style. Against these last three teams, it was, you stuck to your identity for the most part. A couple of blips here and there. That happens sometimes, especially in your, your, when you're in the lead. But against this level of opposition, that's something that the Canucks players in that room can be proud of. And I think Rick it. he was a little understated in the press conference after the game against Florida. But you know, underneath it, saying, all right, if we can roll with these guys, we got something going here.
0: Absolutely, and a big part of that success is the the level of team defense that, that we're seeing from them, but also the level of goaltending they're getting. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about goaltending with it being Luongo going into the Ring of Honor, but Thatcher Demko put forth a Luongo-esque performance in that game against the Panthers, and if you look at his body of work on this homestand, after maybe a stretch where I'm not going to say that, that Demko was bad, But his level had come down a little bit during that stretch where the Canucks were winning one and losing one and going 500. And you could probably say that about anyone on the team. It's just magnified because it's the goaltender. But, you know, I could make a very solid argument that Thatcher Demko was the best Canuck on this homestand. And when they've got that structure, they're buying into the way Tockett wants them to play. And then they've got a goaltender who gives them the level of goaltending that Demko has given them of late. All of those things add together to, to combine for what I'm talking about here where they're playing some of the best hockey we've seen from them this year.
1: We all acknowledge that Thatcher Demko, when he's on his game, he's one of the best goaltenders in the league. I, nobody's talking out of pocket on that one. But what you got to do is give your goaltender a chance. And the last couple of years, the Canucks were not in a position to do that. They, they didn't have cohesion as a part of their defensive game. This year, what Thatcher Demko is doing is he's doing his job and what i mean by that it doesn't feel like he's got to do everything where he's got to look at the back door he's got to you know take the shot he's got to look at it from multiple angles where the defense in front of him is sometimes giving him the shot where they'll take the pass so it's easy to say hey i you know we're not giving up anything on the back end i can trust my defenders to do so um we're not it's not second or third opportunities Like we would have seen last year, you're not giving up the middle of the ice so easily. And Batch, we start looking at, you know, the, the game against Florida is a great example where going into that game, the Florida Panthers have the highest or amongst the highest shot totals per game and the lowest shots against per game. So, you know, they're going to try to go volume on you. You know, they're going to limit the middle of the ice if they play well. And that's exactly what happened. But what Vancouver did extremely well was. Those shots that came in, those 36 shots, for the most part, were all perimeter. The middle of the ice, the guts of the ice, as Rick Tockett calls it, is something that he you know, he prides on himself as this team has to be sticky and you're not going to allow easy zone entries. You're not going to be able to move freely through the neutral zone against us. That's the way that the Canucks should play. But one of the key areas was that you know that Florida is going to be playing you know, a, a physical style, and they're going to try to work their way to the middle of the ice, especially from the corners and down low. And the Canucks were not making life you know, easy for the Panthers. Everything was contested, 15, 16 shot blocks in that game. And that's where I look at to say, hey, Thatcher Demko played a heck of a game, especially in the third period, keeps that shutout going. But in the first 40 minutes, the Panthers, despite having shooter volume, got nothing in the middle of the ice. And that's a credit to that structure you speak of.
0: Yeah, when you think about major saves that Demko had to make, like, the, the only ones that really stand out for me were the, the saves on Barkov right at the end of the first period on the doorstep with the rebound, and he he got it with the left pad. Um, so it's it's kind of one of those things, and, and I've talked about this a lot this year, too, that last season when things were going wrong, it felt like a bad thing would happen, which would compound and lead to another bad thing and another bad thing, and then you get a snowball rolling downhill, and, you know, that's something that Rick Tockett has talked about in the past as well. And Bruce Boudreaux even spoke about when he was here. When things are going well for you and you're doing the right things and you're buying into the game plan, the good things you do lead to more good things. And we can talk about that in a micro sense in terms of... An individual game where you defend well, and as a result, your goaltender doesn't have to work as hard, so you're not asking as much of him, and his individual numbers come up, and then him playing well builds confidence for your team, and they play better in front of him, and all of those things go in the right direction. And then you can talk about it from a macro perspective, looking at the entire season and saying, because the Canucks got off to this great start They have this big cushion in the standings. They can manage Demko's minutes better down the stretch. They can get Casey DeSmith in more, and the team's confident when he's playing well. So that builds on the confidence. And then you can talk about managing minutes for your top players, too. And uh, JT Miller's minutes were down last night. We've seen situations lately where Rick Tockett hasn't been afraid to put Zadorov and Myers out in late-game situations instead of, you know, upping those minutes for Hughes and Hronik. And these are a bunch of little things that add up to make things much more sustainable for the Canucks in terms of building on this success and carrying it forward the rest of the season.
1: And I'm glad you brought that up, especially on the the Casey DeSmith perspective, because in previous years, there was always a conversation of, hey, when you have an opportunity to play Thatcher Demko, and he's going to get most of those games, especially after some brutal starts to the season, Thatcher's getting wins, but the backups aren't. And a part of that conversation was also, Thatcher Demko was doing everything. He was putting on heroics game after game because the defense was falling apart, the structure wasn't there. Uh, We saw what we saw, we don't need to go over that in detail. That's a really difficult spot for a backup goaltender to be in, where the guy in front of you is, you know, making saves that really no other goalie or very few goalies can make those saves, so... When we'd see certain goaltenders get into that backup spot and not get the W, not get, you know, Thatcher Demko-like saves and save the team, it would look bad upon them. But I think the Casey DeSmith example this year shows us that when you can stick uh, stick to that structure, when you can play a certain style that is consistent, game in, game out, that is the expectation. The bar is to play a structured game um to to play a certain style to move the puck up the ice quick you know you're making those decisions really quickly um and you're not surrendering surrendering the middle of the ice that also sets up the backup for just a lot more success too because you're not relying on you know starter heroics you're saying hey i'm gonna this team is gonna probably play the same way that they did in front of thatcher demko and there's a consistency there so it's not only about thatcher i think it just emboldens you and makes you a little bit more confident if you're a backup goaltender. So, especially for DeSmith, he's looked great. He's had great numbers. Part of that is also the team in front of him. It's not only about him. It's There, there is consistency once uh, for this team, and and you're seeing it play out in a lot of different ways. It's not a perfect team, but you start looking at some of their, you know, their, their record, obviously, their points, and the way that they've been able to pull off seven-game segments. Batch. I, I look at the season in seven-game segments where, are you able to win You know the majority of them? And the Canucks have only lost one seven-game segment this season. That was a couple of weeks ago, but they bounced back, and they've started the most recent one off, 2-0. and So that tells you something, that this team is a lot more consistent, and as the season goes and it ramps up, it seems like they're starting to get a little bit more comfortable to play really good teams and grind out victories.
0: Well, and that style is so important, and, and you talk about it in relation to DeSmith and the goaltending, but... That's really what this is all about. And it's appropriate that you bring up seven game segments because, of course, if this team wants to have playoff success, that's all seven game segments, seven game series. And this brings the conversation back to the guy that we've been talking about every single week in Andre Kuzmenko, who right now is playing down the lineup. But, you know, that's the the accountability, the way they want to play, playing that way consistently and holding Kuzmenko accountable to try and make sure that he gets on that program is all tied into what we're talking about there, which is the long-term success, the playing the way you need to play when the games change in April and hopefully May and hopefully June for this team if they're able to go on a, a tremendous playoff run. And I don't know about you, but But I've seen Kuzmenko make some strides in the right direction in some of those quote-unquote non-negotiables from Tockett over the last week. Obviously, it's nice he's got goals in a couple of games now, so that's going to benefit his confidence. But we've seen some good back checks from him. I thought he was more diligent on the check in the game against Florida in particular. And, you know, it's not going to change overnight. He's not going to go from the player that he's been to this point in his career to a a fore-checking machine that's always there on the back check, always in the right spots. But I do have some hope for Kuzmenko based on what I've seen this week because I think he's starting to get it and apply some of the changes that they want him to make to his game.
1: Well, there's two steps to this. First of all, you got to get the player's attention. And I think with Kuzmenko, um, he's always been receptive. But until you have to sit out a game, you truly don't have a player's attention. Uh, The most valuable thing in the NHL is ice time. And, you know, it also hits your pride a little bit when you're, you're sitting out a game and, and that's happened. And that's something that he's had to deal with. And I've thought he took it quite well. Now, the other thing is, you know, in terms of progress, yeah, he's been a lot more, you know, he was buzzing earlier, early on in that period, uh, scoring a goal is really nice. And he's been able to do that a couple of times, but those smaller habits you mentioned being a little bit more aggressive on the um, you know, just being a little bit more active stick than in the past where. You might see a flyby, or you might see him trying to blow the zone. You're not seeing that as often. It's not a perfect game. I think there's still, you know, puck management issues that pop up every now and then. And you're saying, hey, just get that puck deep. Sometimes don't try to make that extra move at the blue line because that's going to cost you. Uh, it hasn't cost him in the last couple of games. But Batch, you're right. This is not a uh, a short-term thing. He's not going to turn into you know Mark Stone overnight. That that's not a, <laughs> a thing in the NHL. It's can you chip away. And start making those changes in habits where, to your point, and I've been saying this for the, it feels like the last three weeks, and it's going to be the story for the rest of the season as this team moves forward. And it's not only Andre Kuzmenko, but I think it especially, you know, features him is, are you in that trusted group of players that imagine a game is 4-4 or 2-2 or whatever it is. And there's three minutes, two minutes left in a third period in the playoffs. Are you on the ice? Is your coach trusting of you to be on that on the ice at that moment. Uh, and that's where Andre Kuzmenko needs to get to. It might not happen overnight. It might take, you know, a roller coaster of a ride. There's gonna be some bad games, but I think so far he started that, but this is not only for him. This is for everybody on that roster to say, you've built yourself a very, very nice cushion here, but now you start looking towards of building those habits that make you a winning team n- beyond April, beyond May potentially, depending on how this team goes.
0: This is In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Still plenty of show to come. On the other side, we're going to take some listener questions, talk about JT Miller. We've got a good question in about Miller, and that was something we wanted to discuss on the show anyway this week, Randeep, so we'll get to that coming up in a few moments. Also want to talk about one of Kuzmenko's line mates in the game against the Panthers, Pew Suter, his return to the lineup, and what that means for the group going forward. It's all still to come right here on In the Booth. You're listening to your official home of the Canucks. This is Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to In the Booth on Sportsnet 650. Brendan Batchelor and Randeep Janda with you, as we are every single week. If you missed any part of the show, download the podcast, subscribe to the Canucks Central podcast feed. You get our show every week. You get every Canucks post game show with Sat and Bic, and you get Canucks Central itself with Sat and Reach five days a week too it's also the place to go for emergency podcasts when the Canucks make a big trade or there's big news around the organization so you want to make sure to stay subscribed to that so you get those podcasts as well Randy just before the break I mentioned Pew Suter who returned to the Canucks lineup in their win over the Panthers on Thursday and I thought he really added a lot to that quote-unquote fourth line with Andre Kuzmenko and Phil Giuseppe. And now you look at the way the Canucks lines are constructed. That third line of Joshua Bluger and Garland have been playing great together. Now you've got Pew Suter, who has routinely been a 14-15 goal scorer through the first few years of his NHL career, playing on your fourth line with Andre Kuzmenko who scored 39 goals last season, and Phil DiGiuseppe, who started this season as a pretty consistent top six forward for this Canucks team, and you look at the way that the lines are built right now, and you know maybe you would quibble with. Pedersen's wingers at the moment with Mikheyev and Lafferty, but this is the deepest forward group that I can remember the Canucks having in recent years, and it's amazing how much things look different, not to take anything away from a guy like Neil Zomon, but you get Pugh Suter back in there, and suddenly you look at these four lines, and you really like what you see.
1: You're right about the forwards, but I think the center depth is something that's really important here, because we saw last year, you had Pedersen, you had Miller, you had Horvat uh, up until, of course, the trade happened. You had a lot of firepower, but fits really matter on teams that are trying to win. And this year, you have Pedersen, you have Miller, you have the high end. We've seen what they've been able to do offensively. We've seen on most nights, or the majority of nights, JT Miller being able to handle his matchups. Elias Pettersson, uh tearing up the league to start off the year. Obviously, you know, still in that discussion as a top 10 scorer. But when I start looking at the bottom end of that, top six, or the bottom six, sorry. Um, one of the things that really just makes a lot of sense is Bluger and Suter, the way that they play the game, really smart players first of all. And you mentioned the goal output of Pugh Suter over the last few years in the NHL. He can put up goals. He's in that you know middle teens kind of range. Uh, you can expect that from him, especially if you give him softer matchups, but he doesn't have to exclusively play those softer matchups. In Vancouver, he's in a unique spot here where you know J.T. Miller's going to play those toughs. But with Teddy Bluger, you have a player that is willing to take those on. I'm talking about defensive zone faceoffs. With Pew Suter, before his injury, he was, you know one of the better faceoff players on this team, especially shorthanded, which is really vital. So it's not only about five on five game of when needed. and the Florida game is a classic example where J T. Miller not having a great time with that matchup, Rick Tockett had had options to say, all right, Blueger can play that role to a certain degree. Suter can lean in there uh, when he needs to as well. Um, You do have more options. So from a scoring perspective, you're right. They've been able to to lean in there, especially that Blueger line, finally getting some bounces going their way, some luck and some hard work. But defensively, I look at both of these guys as like neutralizers where you might not get that much offense, but they're not giving much up defensively. Uh, The middle of the ice is just locked down so that's where the center depth, especially the wingers, there's still some room to navigate there where you're asking a question of, all right, what's the long-term fit on Elias Petterson's wings? Who's going to be playing there? And you know, Mikheyev going to be the, you know, the, the four checker, the guy that's really bringing the effort. Uh, but who's that other winger? Is it Kuzmenko? Is it Lafferty? I just feel in the bottom six, especially uh, you've got such solid centermen if they can stay healthy. That's been an issue thus far, but when they've played together in the lineup, he played well.
0: And this ties into a, a good listener question we get in uh, on Twitter from at Dalveer Vander, who asks, should the Canucks prioritize adding help on the blue line or bolstering the forward group? And I mean, the the honest answer, Randeep, is both. Like, I, I don't think you can ever have too many defensemen and they certainly need help with the forward group and some of those uh, wing spots and maybe another impact winger that can play up the lineup. But when it comes down to picking one or the other, I lean the forward group and particularly the wingers, because, you know, as you rightly point out, things are settled down the middle with the guys that they have, assuming they stay healthy. And even if they have injuries, they've got Neil Zoman who can play the middle. They've got Sam Lafferty who can play the middle. So there is some depth there but it is the wings in particular that concern me, or concern might be too strong of a word, that it's the area of the team that I think needs improving the most, especially up the lineup when you look at the fact that McKayev and Lafferty are the guys playing with Elias Patterson right now.
1: No doubt, and that's a great question because to your, to your answer, uh, there's a little bit of help needed on both sides of things, but when you look at you know Patrick Alvin's mindset this year, Is it Patrick Alvin, carpe diem, seize the moment? Like, is that going to be the mentality where, you know, heading into this year, you might have had a a thought of, hey, this team's going to be competitive, but we don't know how far they can go. In we're looking at this team doing things and being really good teams. Um, Is your mindset of, hey, Thatcher Demko's playing out of this world. Quinn Hughes is doing his thing. Pedersen, you know, was lighting the league on fire to start off the year, and he's still putting up points. JT Miller's second in the league in scoring. We got to build around this team. We got to, we could have something special here. If that is the mindset, you know, I was of the opinion maybe a couple of weeks ago, you, you wait for the winger in the off season. But if you feel this team has enough juice to get you deep into the playoffs, you can win a couple of rounds. Do you try to make that move this year? Right? How important is that draft pick? Because we can all imagine what the asking price for any impact forward will be. It'll be a first round pick. Are you willing to give that up this year? I didn't think it was a question a few weeks ago because I thought, hey, long game. But if they start beating teams that are really good and beating them in the regular season versus the the playoffs, it, there's a difference. There's a huge difference. And and this team hasn't shown us that they can do that yet. But do you reinforce them to say, hey, when you get into the playoffs, we're going to give you, you got horses to run with here. So it is a question. And a lot of this goes to the mindset of Patrick Alvin. Uh, he understands they need to get better. But is that a... The window is opening this year, as Jim Rutherford mentioned with Sat and Dan on uh, Canucks Central this past week. Then does that mean you are more likely to make a move this year? And and that's what I'm looking at. And defensively, I think heading into the playoffs, a team always need depth defensemen. You're going to get you know pounded on the forecheck if you can get another NHL body as your sixth or seventh defenseman. You do it at any price. Uh, obviously, you know mid-round picks would be it. You don't want to overpay. But you try to do that as much as you possibly can. But to me, it's about the winger. Is this the year? Is this the time to make the move if you really believe in your team and you believe in your mix?
0: And the salary cap is going to be a factor there too. What can they fit in and how can they make that all work? And we know they're tied up against the cap, and that's part of the reason why, you know, Ethan Bear is not going to be a Vancouver Canuck going forward, at least this season or in the next few years. Um, But when it, it comes to whether they look to make that move, Randeep, I think the one thing we can say is based on the comments that Rutherford made this week in a variety of outlets, including right here on Sportsnet 650, is I don't expect them to go chasing rental players, let's put it that way. Uh, I I don't think they want to mortgage the future for a chance at some short-term success with the group this year. They understand that it's not just about this season, but it's about the next few seasons and trying to open that window and then extend having that window open. So what I would say is if they are to go and chase an impact winger, it's not going to be someone that they don't feel either – Uh, can be re-signed if it's a guy on an expiring contract that they can make a part of the future with this organization, or it's someone who's got term that's locked in that they know can be a part of the solution for multiple years, not just this one.
1: Yeah, Patrick Alvina's writing his letter to Santa. It's going to be a younger player with some term and a hard-nosed player with some hard skill that can play alongside uh, on Elias Patterson, but is not afraid to to go to the greasy areas, right? And some of those players uh, play on. It's very similar to some of the players that play on the the Florida Panthers. I don't think the Panthers will be selling anytime soon, but like that's that's the 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 letter to Santa from Patrick Alvine, which I would expect um, you know to have a couple of things on it, and in addition to the defenseman. But here's the thing, though. Uh, to your point, if you can't get it this year, uh, this team still has young players skilled players but i have gotta think this success has you know made the management group think a little differently to say hey we we wanted to be competitive we thought you know if thatcher demko and our stars played well we'd be a relevant team and we'd be fighting for a playoff spot we'd be in in that discussion we heard jim rutherford said if everything goes right we'll be there um everything has gone right and they're they're not only fighting for a playoff spot they're fighting for second or third in that division um, so it, it's made the conversation a little interesting here.
0: It certainly has. And here's another question in from Sanj that kind of dovetails into what we're talking about. He asks, what would it cost the Canucks to acquire another second or third pairing right shot defenseman like a Sean Walker? And my answer to this question is pretty simple. I don't know because... I did not have a good read on the Nikita Zadorov situation. I thought the Canucks would have had to pay quite a lot more than they did to bring Zadorov in. And ultimately, what made the difference for Vancouver in that situation was their ability to take on all of Zadorov's contract and not have the Flames retained. So the fact that these are factors that we have to talk about with these sort of trades now, retained salary and and these kind of things, to me, makes the price a moving target. Um, but we know that right-shot defensemen are at a premium. We know that the Canucks won't be the only team in the league trying to acquire a player like that, and so I do wonder if as much as they'd like to add another defenseman and particularly another right-shot defenseman, if the cost may end up being too prohibitive for them, and then, of course, you know you have to take into account the salary and the fact that they weren't able to sign a guy like Ethan Baer.
1: And the other thing I would add to that is, you know, you mentioned Bear going, looks like the the Washington link is a a strong one, obviously. And Chris Tanev, um, he's dealing with an upper body injury. If you watch the hit he took, it looked like a head injury. His availability or lack thereof potentially in the next few weeks, does that change the price on a Sean Walker, right? Chris Tanev is seen as the, the most sought after right shot defenseman on the market this year. But if he's got to sit it out a little bit and he's off the trade board for a little bit, what are you doing? Sean Walker is going to probably take the attention of a few teams, including the Toronto Maple Leafs if they're not already involved and, and a bunch of other teams. So the price, yeah, I think the anytime you have a right-shot defenseman, you start thinking about second-round picks probably starting off. But if Tanev's not there, I'm expecting that price to go a little bit further,
0: Batch. Here's another good question in from Jamie, who's uh, an avid listener of the show, and we always appreciate Hearing from you, Jamie, he asks, has JT Miller set a standard for the Canucks on and off the ice with taking ownership of their roles? And this is perfect, Randy. And I'm really glad that Jamie sent this question in because this is something we were going to talk about anyway. And this stems from Miller's comments after the game against the Panthers, well, a
1: good thing our line didn't play anymore because we were giving up grade A chances left and right. Um, we just we struggled tonight. Um, you know, whoever the Harkovs line, they outplayed us mightily. So uh, we need to uh, own that as a line for sure, especially if we're considered playing in a matchup role. And didn't think we were very good. So I'm glad that everybody else seemed to play pretty well, and the goalie played awesome.
0: This, to me, is as good a sign of any as to how the culture around this team has changed, how the expectations have changed for them internally, not in terms of results, but in terms of the way they want to play and how effective they want to be on a night-to-night basis. If a guy like J.T. Miller, who's one of your team leaders, one of your leading scorers, one of your most important players, is nitpicking a 4-0 win over a team that was in the Stanley Cup final last year and being critical of his own game, and then... You know, we talked to Rick Tockett after the game, and I put that question to him as well. You know, what does that say about the level of accountability that you've brought in here? That JT Miller is saying these kind of things after such a nice win for you? Yeah, he's happy we went four nothing, but he, you know, he wants to go to the video tomorrow. Like he's on us coaches, he wants to know what
1: happened, what can he do better? He's done that all week about his defensive play that to me is a guy not satisfied. I mean, I love that.
0: And that's a a thing that can give Canuck fans a lot of confidence going forward that the standard is set sky high for this group and they're consistently striving to not just meet it, but exceed it. The other thing it tells
1: me also is that this team is looking at the long-term. They're looking at this as being a marathon rather than a sprint. When you're looking for small victories, you'll find them. And JT Miller, this is a guy that wants to win. He's a competitive player. And he understands what he wants to be, which is a 1C. A he wants to be the matchup guy. He wants to be the, the guy that's playing against the best players in the NHL night in, night out. And Batch, if you start looking at the head-to-head matchups, um, I think you know the majority of the matchups, JT's won this year. When you've got 20, out of, 20 wins out of 30 games, uh, obviously JT has been doing a heck of a job second in the league in scoring, but that bar internally... You're looking at some matchups over the even the last little bit to say hey Jack Eichel got the best of me Jack Hughes got the best of me Sasha Barkov even though he didn't score I didn't like the way we played in the third period that's a high internal bar and one thing I'll say is when the playoffs do come around when the game does change as we talked about March April you know those top six matchups head-to-head those can decide series as much as we like to focus on the bottom six and those guys can make a difference It's the stars that will guide you through the playoffs and winning a round. Can you, you know, limit the damage of the opposition of a star player on the opposite side? That's what's going to decide a series. So I think JT's looking at to say, Hey, it's great. I'm putting up points. We're winning, but I didn't like that period because I know what I need to be for this team to have success beyond game 30, beyond game 50, beyond game 62, 67, whatever it is, it's in the playoffs. I got to win my matchups. I got to be at least neutral. And I love that style of thinking from JT Miller because this is not thinking about, hey, four or five games. Players will generally say, hey, one game at a time. But to me, this is a, I have an internal standard. And once this team does make the playoffs, it's going to be, I have to meet that standard game in, game out. And I don't doubt that JT can. I think he's one of the most competitive players Vancouver's ever seen. But yeah, he internally understands he's gotta ramp up his game and he's gonna win at matchups, which is which is the rule of the game in the playoffs.
0: And that you know, message from a guy like Miller kind of informs everything that we can look at with this team in terms of your leaders are setting that standard. It's going to be expected of guys throughout the lineup. We already talked about Kuzmenko and where he sits at the moment and how he's having to learn to buy into some of these things. We've seen other guys demoted in the lineup or healthy scratched because um, you know they're not delivering at that that same level or finding that consistency in their game. That that the group wants and and the coaching staff wants and the organization expects. And that to me is the biggest word that is going to define this Canucks season is consistency because we saw them have a, a great first, you know, 14, 15 games of the year. Then they went through a 10 or 12 game stretch where it wasn't as good, yet they still found a way to play 500 hockey through that stretch. And now we're talking about them coming out of that stretch again and playing some of the best hockey that we've seen from them. But what does this look like after Christmas? What does it look like after the All-Star break? What does it look like in late March and into April and into the first round of the playoffs and hopefully beyond that? Because we hear coaches talk all the time and players in the league talk about how the game changes and the game is not the same in october as it is in december and it's not the same in december as it is in february and in the playoffs and so on and so forth after the trade deadline down the stretch run so the fact that these guys are setting these high levels that they need to aspire to at this point in the season and the coaching staff is holding guys accountable for the way they're playing at this point in the season is something that will prepare them very well for the way they are going to need to play when the games get harder later in the year. Totally. And that's something that I think with this
1: coaching staff, and that's what I like about even uh, the style of conversation and Batch, you were there, we were in the press conference listening to Rick talk at after the Florida game where he's, you- just kept on saying, hey, that's a really good team on the other side. You could tell that Tockett liked the way his team played, but fat and happy is not a thing that this coach likes. You've had a great stretch here against you know, some really good teams, but remember, you don't bask in the glory of a, a win over against a good Florida Panthers team. You don't look back at that Tampa game. It's You're as only as good as your last game in this league, and that's why I think just the ability to keep everybody honest, whether it's JT Miller to himself uh, – other players within that locker room and then the coach setting the tone that's a recipe for success you have to deliver on the ice but so much of this game is also mindset if you take your foot off the gas and you're not bringing it every single game guess what you know there's a lot of a lot of players in this league that are trying to win jobs that they're trying to extend their career they're playing for pride they're playing for the standings whatever Uh, they'll beat you and they'll beat you good so the Canucks just to have that right mentality this year we can see how far it'll take them nobody can predict the future but Having that sort of mindset is so important in this league.
0: Thanks for your listener questions this week. We appreciate them as always. If you ever have a question that you want us to answer on the show, you can get at us at Batch Hockey, at Randeep Janda, at Sportsnet 650 are the handles you need. You can find those on Instagram, TikTok, and of course, as I say, every game, the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. We're going to get to the Rose ceremony here in a minute, Randy, but before that, we should look ahead to what's coming up for the Canucks as they now embark on a four-game road trip. Let's highlight the beginning of this road trip, which is back-to-back day games in Minnesota on Saturday and in Chicago on Sunday against the Blackhawks.
1: Yeah, and we've seen Minnesota recently, so you know that's a team that you expect to play hard. They've had some injuries since then, so Uh, Brodeen got hit by Evander Kane in the game against Edmonton, so not as strong defensively as they were before, but Vancouver knows that team well. Chicago, of course, uh, that's the revenge game for one Anthony Bevilier, so keep keep that on your calendar. And really our first look for Connor Bedard against his boyhood team, a team that he still cheered for up until last year. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but this is a guy that's been tearing up the league, especially in transition. That shot is elite. I look forward to calling that one. It's not every single day you can call a, a prodigy, uh, a player, a superstar, some would argue already, but like in the making in front of your eyes. So this is, you know, a couple of teams that maybe haven't, uh, don't get the headlines in the NHL. Uh, Chicago, not a strong team, but uh, you can expect that to change in the next couple of years here as they build around Connor Bedard.
0: Yeah, and both sub-500 teams. So I think that's going to be an interesting thing. It's a road back-to-back in a couple of different cities. You imagine DeSmith is going to get one of those two games. I believe he could get two of four games on the road trip, but we'll have to wait and see. So, you know, this is another – it's not a measuring stick for the Canucks in terms of the opponent and the level of opponent because, as I said, you know, Chicago, nine wins this year. Minnesota's under 500 too but how do you manage these two games can you effectively go into two buildings where you're expected to win and get some points on the road and continue to build on that cushion that we've talked about already do want to mention programming note because they are both matinee games Saturday 11 a.m the Canucks and the Wild pregame show will get underway at 10 o'clock in the morning then On Sunday, it's a noon puck drop. The Canucks and the Blackhawks and the pregame show will begin at 11 a.m. Randy, before we get into the rose ceremony and before we get out of here, I want to give you a chance to highlight what you've got coming up as well on Saturday night on Hockey Night in Canada, Punjabi.
1: That's right. We got uh, Toronto versus Pittsburgh. So that's uh, the revenge game, the return of Kyle Dubas. And we're actually doing another Florida game against Edmonton uh, for the late game on Hockey Night in Canada up in Jabiz. You'll be uh, joined by Brett Festerling this weekend for an early morning game, which is going to be uh, good luck with that one. Get the uh, the coffee going early.
0: Yeah, I'll make sure to uh, to have the extra strong coffee ready to go for that one. And then you'll be back with me on Sunday for the game against the Blackhawks. Okay, let's get into the roast ceremony. We do it every week. If you've never heard this segment before, my name's Brandon Bachelor, So I'm a bachelor. Randeep, of course, is an eligible bachelor. We're
1: working on that. Don't worry.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So this is our edition of of The Bachelor, and we're going to give out our roses to people that we think deserve them with the Vancouver Canucks over the past week. I'm going to go with uh, Noah Juleson for my rose, Randeep. And, you know, my rose is starting to turn into, like, an unsung hero award, but, hey, it's my rose. I can give it to whoever I want. And I will say, and, you know, as you know, Randeep, I tweet the lines out at practices. I tweet them out before the games. I have seen lots of players draw the ire of the fan base and all the time in my mentions people will be like oh why is this guy playing and you know what's he doing on that line and and we'll weigh in with their opinion which I love to see and Tyler Myers is a guy that over his years here has gotten a lot of that you know why is Myers playing in this spot in the lineup and you understand with the contract and everything the criticism there's been a lot of criticism on social media for Noah Julson, and I don't really understand it because especially over the last week maybe even the last couple of weeks I've really liked his game I think he simplified things I think he's playing really well playing physical he's reliable on the penalty kill so I'm giving my rose to Noah Julson. what about you Randy who gets your rose this week
1: I'm gonna actually change it up here it won't be a player it's not management it's The home ice crowd at Rogers Arena. This is now turning into a fortress again. It's been a while since we could say that. 12-3-1, this team at home. A plus 30 goal differential. And there is a pop in the building now. Batch, we've been calling games the last few years in Vancouver. Uh, You know, just the ability to now see and hear. Just the love, the passion back in this arena. And the players feel it as well. But to me, I'm giving my rose to that record. So shouts to the team. But also... The energy, oh, trust me, we can feel the difference now that Canucks hockey is back at a national level. People are paying attention, and they're paying attention to the crowd as well.
0: Unfortunately, we're out of time on this week's show. Thanks for joining us yet again. If you missed any part of the show, you can download the podcast on the Canucks Central podcast feed, as I mentioned. And we'll talk to you again next week, right here on your official home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.